Welcome back to Resident Reels, everybody, your two favorite uh, podcasters who talk about movies and television and things and audio perspectives. I'm Adam. I'm Chandler. And man, do we have a crazy episode of Holiday Magic, right? Uh, just good, heartwarming, like fun movies uh, because we keep going back and forth between like fun, weird, enjoyable and sad, depressing, enjoyable. So yeah. we we vowed to ourselves that the rest of the month we're just going to go happy and fun because we need that right now. But that's exciting. It's very exciting. So this week has been a bunch of classics to us, like classic holiday films to us, right? Yes. So I, I'll let Adam kick us off with his crazy fever dream of a movie let me tell you perfect so my movie is uh how the grinch stole christmas from 2000 directed by ron howard and this is the live action movie that is based off of the book obviously by dr seuss and it stars jim carrey as our grinch and when I like this is so this is how I feel about this movie. It's a classic because I always just wind up watching it. I don't necessarily make a point to go out of my way to watch this movie, but I I wind up watching this movie every single like December pretty much, like holiday season. Every time I watch it, I just enjoy it because of the words you used, fever dream. Um I feel like this is absolutely batshit bonkers like the production value of this film is beyond my comprehension it is crazy and it, again like stars jim carrey um we have one of my personal favorite uh actors christine baranski is in this is in this film who you may not know her by name, but if you looked up a picture of her, you've absolutely seen her in probably like 800 things because she's never a main character, but she's always like so memorable in whatever it is that she does. And we've got uh, Jeffrey Tambor's in the movie, Bill Irwin. So we really have like, like uh, uh just oh mindy sterling like it is a it is a, another movie that's so bizarre and it's even more bizarre by how many stars they've managed to hop on this train oh and how many of the howard family it gets snuck in to this movie like a bunch of like his kids and brothers and siblings and one two three at least Three. I think there's a couple more that are un that go uncredited. Four, uh, four. Yeah, and there are things like surprised who, like Drew Lou who, and like the elderly timekeeper. Like, uh, oh, also uh, hubris, which I think is very funny. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that tells you everything you need to you need to know, basically. So if you don't know the the story of the Grinch, I will I will tell it for you now. There is Whoville uh, in this movie exists on a teeny tiny snowflake uh, that is floating through the air, and so we have a really cool credit seek or not credit uh, like intro sequence of like this snowflake like 
floating through and then we just like keep zooming in on the snowflake as we hear this like singing and this entire town of Whoville, home to the Who's, are preparing for Christmas. And Chandler is like, <laughs> uh, Chandler is very excitedly waving his hands in the camera right now. I just, <laughs> when I started the movie and like the Anthony Hopkins narration starts and everything, and he, and he literally says, the town of Whoville that lives on a single piece of a snowflake that falls down every year. I lost my mind because I'm like, this is all on a snowflake? Like, how how much more ridiculous can this get? And I'm like, it's Seuss. It's it's a Seuss thing. Because I have to- it's because all of the Who's apparently just live on teeny tiny things because in Horton Here's a Who, they live on like a on a speck, like on a flower or whatever. This is like speck. So the who's are beyond our comprehension uh, of of small. And we have our protagonist is a small child named Cindy Lou Who. And Cindy Lou Who uh, in this movie is played by Taylor Momsen. Cindy Lou Who is not in the holiday spirit. Um, she is feeling just kind of like distant from all of the Christmas things. And to put into perspective, like this town of Whoville spends its entire existence preparing for Christmas. So like there, there's literally a point in the film at one, at one point where it's like only 364 more days till Christmas, like at, like towards the, (laughs) towards the end of the, the movie, like this is their life. And so for somebody to not be feeling the holiday cheer, that is, that is not, you know, not good. So we get this little, uh, like prelude moment. If we were recording a Breaking Bad episode, I might call it a teaser. Cindy Lou, whose brother and, uh, some of his friends decide to go up to Mount Crumpet because that is where it is rumored that the Grinch lives. And the Grinch is this like entity, this thing that like everybody knows about and it's real. Like, no, like nobody denies necessarily that the Grinch doesn't exist, but also they kind of do. But like, it's it's a weird dynamic. And so they go up to Mount Crumpet. They very much like wind up in this Scooby-Doo-esque like trap scare sequence thing that happens where they get like terrified by the Grinch. And so they come back to Whoville uh, from Mount Crumpet, which is technically in Whoville, I guess, but they come off the mountain and they get like admonished by like all the adults in the town basically be- being like, don't make up stories and like, you know, you didn't see the Grinch or, you know, all that kind of stuff. But for Cindy Lou, this like sparks something for her because she finds out that the Grinch doesn't like Christmas. So we have a weird point of connection here now of like, it's not that Cindy Lou who doesn't like Christmas. She's just feeling a little distant from Christmas right now. And so she tries to ask her dad, like all these questions about, you know, who the Grinch is and whatnot. Uh, Her dad is like very dismissive. And also we are in the throes of holiday season. Like the package wrapping machine thing is like going a hundred miles an hour. Like everything out of this scenic design is bananas it's just crazy what they have done to set up like this town and the decorations and everything so cindy lou who's father which is lou lou who 
uh, is um, <laughs> in case nobody figured that out because they mostly just call him Lou, but it's Lou Lou who, and uh, he like tells her like I'll be right back. Can you bring these packages to the back room? And as she goes back there. Who does she run into? None other than the Grinch. Because due to her brother's visit, the Grinch has decided that he is going to come cause some mischief if everybody is so interested in what he's doing. There's a classic scene of like Cindy Lou who is like stuttering. She's like, you're, you're, you're. And he goes, the Grinch. And like, that's like what gets played on the commercial teasers all the time when they're advertising that this movie is about to play. And uh he like scares her and she winds up falling into the mail sorting machine weirdly the grinch saves her which is a which is an important character trait that he didn't like let this little girl die in the mail sorting machine but in order to try to like save face he has to still pretend to be like this big scary bad guy so he wraps her up in like wrapping paper and like ties a bow on her so when her dad finds her she's wrapped up like a christmas package but little does he know the grinch uh this just furthers cindy lou who is like interest in who he is and what happened to him so she starts like going around whoville like a little investigative reporter and interviews a bunch of different people about who he is and where he came from and all this stuff including these two elderly women and their names are clarnella and rose and we find out that clarnella and rose are basically the grinch's lesbian swinger moms um which is the like craziest plot twist you could like and here's the thing is like they don't necessarily point this out and it actually took me until watching this movie last year to realize so there's a flashback scene that we get when everybody is getting delivered their little who babies there is the grinch that shows up in a basket on these like women's doorstep and he is very clearly not a who but in that flashback scene they are fully having a holiday christmas party and they are collecting everybody's keys in a fishbowl which is a very like classic swinger trope because then like the idea is you know someone pulls out keys and whoever keys they pull out like that's who they're like with for the night or whatever and it took me until last year to realize that that's what was happening in that very brief flashback which is wild so they take in the grinch and they raise the grinch and i think that that is actually like a very beautiful narrative moment of like these like swingers tend to be outcasts like queer people obviously tend to be outcasts and so they have taken in this outcast child and didn't think anything of it we find out that as he was growing up he was like very very bullied so then we get my crush as a child christine baranski her character Martha May Huvier. Martha May Huvier was a classmate of the Grinch in school, and as was the mayor of Whoville. And they they all went to class together. The mayor's name is May Who. Have fun keeping track of that. I'm just gonna call him the mayor. The Grinch is I should have mentioned this, I suppose. All the Who's look like fairly normal people with just like very animated faces and specifically they all have like very distinct 
like noses that like curve up and that's like kind of what distinguishes who's the grinch is a giant green fuzzy like monster looking guy he looks nothing like the who's he he is very different so when we have these school flashbacks it's all these normal looking who's and then the fuzzy green grinch and we get to find out that the the grinch wanted to make Martha May Huvier a a Christmas gift because everybody it was Christmas time again like the Who's are obsessed with Christmas when that went to happen he got like bullied the day before for like how hairy he was like the like the mayor as a child and his friends were like bullying him and so the Grinch has as a child an eight-year-old a scene where he goes to like shave off his facial hair and it does not go well and we don't necessarily see the results of it because there's a very cute but sad like montage of like he's holding things in front of his face and the teacher is like the next day when he comes in like can you move that and he'll like move the one object and there's another object there and then she asks him to remove that and then there's another object and finally it's revealed that he just butchered his face trying to shave off the hair and the bad shaving job basically gets the whole class to laugh at him, including Martha May Huvier. That obviously is very traumatic. He throws his Christmas gift that he made for Martha like down on the ground, like breaking everything. And that was his turning point at eight years old for him to hate Christmas, ran away at eight years old to Mount Crumpet. And that is where he has lived ever since this incident as a literal child. So she gets all of that. Uh, Cindy Lou Who finds out all of that information. And Cindy Lou Who is like a very like wise beyond her years because she has now been able to piece together that like the Grinch doesn't hate Christmas. The Grinch was just horribly mistreated by society and like we've let him down. Like that's literally like uh, like the, the adult explanation of what she's processing as a kid. And so... Uh, Christmas gets closer and we have the mayor who is just this schmuck of a guy, which we know because he was the little asshole kid bullying the Grinch in the flashbacks. He announces that there is the (laughs) hubilation where the town, (laughs) the puns in this movie are 90% of it for me and my enjoyment of it, where they are going to, uh, they need to nominate a cheermeister. The mayor is always voted the cheermeister every single year. And so, it's always unanimous, and so that's what he expects. But Cindy Lou Who speaks up and nominates the Grinch, and she says that she feels that the Grinch deserves it the most. And she gives this very inspiring speech for being like a small kid and gets enough people that the Grinch gets nominated. But she is the one who has to climb up to Mount Crumpet to deliver the no- the nomination to the Grinch. So now we have a small child climbing this giant mountain in the snow to this like creepy loner monster guy that everyone's like afraid of. But they're like, yeah, you know what? You nominated him. Go deliver it. And she's like, okay, I will. And so she gets there and she kind of like, falls into this like trash chute pit thing and like there's like a door uh it's again it's all very like scooby-doo-esque traps like that the grinch has like created for himself 
he like recognizes her like as the the girl from the mayor the the mailroom and everything um but he doesn't believe her like he thinks it's a it's a prank that the the who people are just trying to like screw with him again he realizes that it's like real when he finds out he's going to receive an award and that Martha Mayhew VA is going to be in attendance he like kicks out Cindy Lou Who basically like puts her down this like shoot thing that somehow pops her out all the way back down into Whoville and we get this lovely montage of the Grinch like with himself talking about like what is he gonna wear and does he actually want to like attend this party um and this is like another very like famous scene so he says the nerve of those who's inviting me down there on such short notice, even if I wanted to go, my schedule wouldn't allow it. Four o'clock, wallow in self-pity. Four thirty, stare into the abyss. Five o'clock, solve world hunger. Tell no one. Five thirty, jazzercise. Six thirty, dinner with me. I can't cancel that again. Seven o'clock, wrestle with my self-loathing. I'm booked. It, they did such a fun job of making the Grinch this unfortunately relatable individual, with the exception of like you know the toxic "I hate Christmas" and I'm just gonna like be angry at the world stuff but like that is something that gets quoted all the time as well yep that that the Grinch is us as we get older so then he decides he still thinks this is kind of like a trick but he does ultimately decide that he is going to go he attends the to accept his nomination and he gets down to the hubilation and he's he's actually kind of like decked out but he also is like he is taking his moment and he's also taking his moment to like intentionally kind of freak people out because he knows how people feel about him how the who's feel about him he knows that they think he's like scary so he's definitely like playing that up he's like actually seems to be like settling into it and everything until the mayor decides to propose to Martha May Huvier and even offer her this like brand new car. Oh my God. It was so game showy. It was so weird. So game showy. I, I feel like I'm not doing this movie justice in describing how just like ostentatious every visual component of it is because it's, it's insane. And like they did a wonderful job at taking all of the things that you can do in an animation and making that into like a, a live action CGI mix of of like they shoot Christmas lights out of a cannon at one point, uh, perfectly strung along the the edge of the roof of a house. Like it just is so cool. So anyway, that proposal sets off the Grinch again, and he goes into like full mayhem. He like just starts trashing everything. He burns down the Christmas tree. And Cindy Lou who feels bad, not that he, not that like this celebration is getting ruined, but that her whole goal was to make the Grinch feel better. And it worked until that moment. And now the Grinch just feels even worse. And the Grinch goes back to Mount Crumpet. And so then the Grinch gets this idea of, ruining Christmas for the Who's. Um, he said he's going to stop Christmas from even coming. And then we get one of our other uh, famous quotes here is the narrator goes, so whatever the reason, his heart or his shoes, he stood outside his cave hating the Who's. And the Grinch opens a phone book and it's alphabetical. And uh, he says, 
Edvarkian Apokinezer, who I, and then goes, hate you, like yelling into the abyss. And then he goes like, Aaron V. Benson, who I hate you. And then he goes, hate, 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 double hate, loathe entirely. Um, as he's just like going through this phone book of random who names, he embarks on his plan. He dresses as Santa to steal Christmas. He makes a sled out of, because in Mount Crumpet, he's basically living in the landfill, more or less, is what it is. Like, he eats garbage. That's what's like gets sent to him through like the trash chutes and everything. He has his dog, Max, which the dog's real name is Kelly. And I did not look up if Kelly's still alive because I don't want to know. But in the movie, his name is Max. And Max gets dressed up like a reindeer, specifically Rudolph. The funny thing is the Grinch makes like a big point because this movie is so weird with like the the message it's pushing throughout the movie of when he has his big breakdown in Whoville before he goes back up to hate the Who's further he he goes off about how all of the christmas presents end up in the trash and he gets them all anyways because there's things that people don't like they get rid of because they got to make room for new christmas presents like he really points out to the who's that like they don't care about christmas in the like right way which is very interesting that he has that yeah they're all about the gifts and everything yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, he goes on this big rant and it's it's he's like it's all about the gifts and the theatrics and like all of this stuff. And that is exactly what Cindy Lou who was expressing in the beginning is like what about the spirit of Christmas, not just the stuff. Cindy Lou who and the Grinch are kind of two sides of the same coin in a way. So yes, yeah, so Max gets dressed up like a like R- Rudolph and he takes this sleigh and Max which Max has no magical powers. Max is a literal dog. And so it's just Max like pulling the Grinch and this sleigh, which is so depressing. And we get the montage with the classic uh, Your Mean One, Mr. Grinch song as he starts stealing all of the Christmas trees and the presents and the decorations and the lights. He starts stealing all these things, but it's important to note that the first house that he went to is Cindy Lou Who's house. She wakes up from this sleep and she goes downstairs and she's fully like Santa. And the Grinch pretends to be Santa as he's literally mid stealing the Christmas tree. So he just lies to her so that he can escape. But something that's interesting is that as an audience member, you can almost kind of question whether Cindy Lou, who actually was asleep enough to think it was Santa, or if she knew it was the Grinch and like was playing along just to see like, will the Grinch have like a change of heart? Because the, the more times I've watched this, the more I've started to question that particular scene. But anyway, he, he lies. He, she goes back to bed. He starts stripping the entire town of everything into the very classic, just like the original story, a giant sack that he puts on his sleigh. And then they, him, Max, the sleigh, and this giant sack of stuff start to climb back all the way to the top of Mount Crumpet. He is on like this precipice to just chuck everything off the side of the mountain. Meanwhile, we cut to... Every who waking up on Christmas morning, devastated to realize that everything is gone. 
And the mayor, Mayhu, literally blames Cindy Lou Who, like fully starts taking out everything on a child and says that it's her fault that because she enabled the Grinch to be able to do this. She invited him. And then we finally get Lou Lou Who standing up for his daughter and standing up for the spirit of Christmas because he defends her. He says that he's actually very proud of her. He goes into this beautiful monologue that is pointing out exactly what the Grinch was attempting to point out, but in more eloquent words, that Christmas is not about the presents and the decorations, that Christmas should be about spending time with your friends and your family and just being together. And then we get our our other classic scene of all the Who's join hands and they start singing a a Christmas carol, which is the the I can't I'm not gonna sing it, but uh <laughs> it's I believe it's called Welcome Christmas. Uh and it was written by Dr. Seuss uh initially. So this is just a a a, a rendition of Welcome Christmas, which is very beautiful. They have Nothing, you know, no decorations or anything, but they're enjoying Christmas together. As the we cut back to the Grinch on the top of this this mountain on the ledge, and as he is about to push the sack of everything over the edge, he hears them singing Welcome Christmas. And he realizes that he didn't actually do anything to stop Christmas from coming. And the Grinch has his redemption arc in that he now in this moment understands the true meaning of Christmas. And as the poem goes, his heart grew three sizes that day. And he starts like, he starts crying. He has like a full breakdown. He still has this like sleigh full of gifts in this sack and everything. And as he's having this realization, it starts to slip in the snow and get closer and closer to the edge of the cliff. He goes to stop it. And then Max like grabs his ankle and like starts to pull him back as he's like halfway over the edge. And then we realize he has to do this because Cindy was in the sleigh. She had stowed away in the gifts and everything to try to visit the Grinch. And so it is as he realizes that she's in it, that it starts to slip. And so he is able to save Cindy and the sleigh as with his new magical three times the size heart, um, as he pulls everything back over. And he like, apologizes, and he gets back down to Whoville. And he does this very funny, like, take me away, like holds his wrist out, like to the police. And they're like, it's Christmas. Like, no, even though the mayor, Mayhu, is like demanding to have him arrested and even pepper spray him. And this is when Martha Mayhu, or sorry, Martha Mayhuvier figures out that uh, the mayor's like a horrible guy and like really terrible. And she ends their engagement and admits that she's always been in love with the Grinch. Um, and so the Grinch and Martha Mayhuvier get together the Grinch invites everybody over for the Christmas feast where he um, has all of their Christmas decorations and everything. And the film ends with that feast happening and the Grinch is carving the last roast feast. And it is just a honestly like the type of movie that 
Dr. Seuss was very clearly on drugs for all of the craziness that he came up with. This, somebody was on like something different and managed to take the Grinch in this wild, wild direction. But I will say that I know more people who watch the live action than watch the original animated anymore. So this this movie um, for the last, and it actually hurt me a lot to realize uh, that this movie is 23 years old because that doesn't seem real, but apparently it is. For the last 23 years, it has been an absolute success and like a huge hit. Some fun facts about it. It took Jim Carrey two hours to get into makeup every single time they had to film. And it was so grueling um, that he actually hired a CIA agent to help coach him through torture resistance techniques in order to not go like crazy for these two hours that he had to be getting like makeup applied. And also once he was actually in the latex skin, and then it took an hour to take everything off. So three hours of every single day that they filmed were just dedicated to Jim Carrey's Grinch like prosthetics. Yeah, I was I was further reading on stuff like that because it's rewatch. I haven't watched this movie in a while. So it was, it was refreshing to like go back to it. But also I was very weirded out. But I also see a lot of the tortured soul of Jim Carrey through this because like I, it was a few years ago, there was a Netflix documentary special about Jim Carrey and his demons. That was a brilliant piece of just diving into the mind of Jim Carrey and understanding who he is as an artist. And I I can't help but think about that when I'm watching The Grinch and knowing that like the first couple of weeks of shooting, he was impossible to work with at times. Like he would disappear for a couple hours on set and then return and half his like prosthetic makeup is like torn apart. And it was just like an early frustrating process because he was just not okay. And being forced to like be stuck in this like makeup that took three hours of application every day is just insane. Like I don't blame him because he was he did he was in Grinch makeup for like ninety two days I think is what I read. But then like all most of the who's also are in some sort of prosthetic. It's much smaller application, um, except for like the most of the children are not as much. I do feel bad for the little kid Grinch because that's a lot of makeup for him too. That was a lot for that kid, yeah. Some other things, uh, there is a Green Eggs and Ham reference at the end of the movie. Cindy Lou Who slides Max a plate of Green Eggs and Ham at the final dinner. Also, when the Grinch is having his like, do I go, do I not go scene, he has like the tablecloth that he pulls out from underneath all of the stuff on his table and it perfectly cleanly comes out that was actually not supposed to happen um all of the stuff was supposed to fall off with the tablecloth and so jim carrey had to improvise walking back over and just like manually pushing everything over in a in a fit this was the first movie since 1939 wizard of oz that had as many featured characters in the heavy makeup and costumes there was a what would that have been sixty one years between how heavily costumed and makeup everything was. Another one is that his his like bodysuit is actually made of real yak hair and it was dyed green and it was just sewn onto like a like a spandex sort of uh, like suit 
Yeah. Um, oh, there was also something called the Who School, which was a choreographer teaching everybody how to move and be comfortable as a Who. So they fully went to Who School to learn how to be a Who. And someone else who was up for this role, actually three other people, uh, we could have had an entirely different movie, were Jack Nicholson, Dustin Hoffman, and Robin Williams, which I think I, it's so interesting to think about what a Robin Williams Grinch would have been. I'm a big fan of the Jim Carrey Grinch. And as I said, I watch it every single year, sometimes multiple times in the holiday season and never necessarily intentionally of like sitting down to watch it. It just happens. I love it. I love it. This it. It was fun to rewatch and like now I need to like kind of include it more often in my uh, repertoire of Christmas movies, I feel like, because it is. I mean, there was a part of the movie where I'm like, am I high? Like, did I take something? (laughs) I can't believe what I'm seeing right now. The visual style of it and just like the plot, everything marries together so well to make it feel otherworldly and just like a fever dream. Like, it's like... It's something you could totally see yourself having in like a weird nightmare out of body experience, but you can't accept it. You just can't. It, it's just amazing. It, it's fun. I mean, this time now with a lot of my work experience and stuff, I was looking a lot more at the, the VFX and like how much work was done with CGI for like a 2000 movie and like how well it holds up still pretty well i mean it has like a wonka feel at times but like it it works together because the the real set design and costume design and everything is just so outlandish itself that it like it all marries really well together so props to all of the artists and the director and the teams together and the collaboration and coordination to like really make that work also, we can't just say Wonka now because now there is a movie called Wonka. Right. But yeah, so I, I dove into a little bit of the VFX. So most of the VFX was done by Digital Domain. Uh, Kevin Mack was the VFX supervisor. And it's just, it's really cool to see the breakdowns because he, his wife did a lot of the kind of matte paintings of like the distant background and stuff. And so those were like kind of like 2D plates for like further away stuff when they, you know, did 3D reconstructions of some of the closer stuff. And it's just really clever work and utilizing just whatever tricks they had at the time to be able to do like that many, you know, VFX shots within a movie. Cause it was like, it was like in the, it was like over 300 major VFX shots kind of total up to about 40 minutes of VFX alone in the movie including some, like, there was, like, 30-odd shots that were completely CGI, so, like, no real human plates or anything. And there's, like, you can Google some, like, really cool videos of, like, some of the VFX breakdowns of, like, how they added in CG and the actual on-set on filming and how they incorporated CG into it. It's, like, really cool breakdowns that are out there that I highly recommend. Also, this soundtrack is surprisingly banging. Oh, it's so good. And also, they're all pretty much uh, who puns, all the songs. I mean, like, even just, like, if you look up the the official soundtrack, it's got, like, Bare Naked Ladies, Smash Mouth, Trans-Siberian Orchestra, Faith Hill, NSYNC. It's, like, Busta Rhymes is in it, too. I'm, you're just like, what is, what is this movie? That's what I'm saying. It's one of those weird things where they just got a bunch of people signed on 
Awesome. Well, Chandler, why don't you take us into your movie, which would have been my movie if you hadn't claimed it first. I'm still a little salty, but it's okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't know uh, we had specific ownerships over movies or anything. I didn't like grow up with, with this movie either and, you know, was close to my heart. Anyways, <laughs> <laughs> passive aggression aside, my movie was Home Alone from 1990, directed by Chris Columbus and written by John Hughes. Like these are greats of the of of their craft. Like John Hughes is known for all the Brat Pack films, 16 Candles, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Breakfast Club, Pretty in Pink, Uncle Buck for some of his comedies. He's was a master of writing comedy and he was a machine about it. Cause like some movies like, like home alone, he wrote in like a week on part of his family vacation or something. And like pretty in pink, he wrote in like three days or something. I did know that about pretty in pink, but I did not know that about home alone. It's, it's crazy. I, I he is just a master. He was a master writer. Cause sadly he passed away in 2009 but like he also saw the potential into other artists. So like he knew Chris Columbus like was a very successful potential because at the time he met Chris Columbus, he had only written a few. He was a screenwriter at the time, so he's written a few scripts. But during that era of like the 80s in Hollywood, like when you have a flop, you're kind of dead to Hollywood. Like there's no coming back. So like Chris Columbus, he I think he wrote one of the treatments for Gremlins and Gremlins did really well. And then he went and wrote a treatment for Heartbreak Hotel, which was this Elvis movie that bombed heavily. Like he seemed like his career was over in Hollywood, but then John Hughes was like, yo, why don't you do National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation? Because John Hughes also wrote a bunch of the vacation movies of the time. And Chris Columbus he was directing the movie, but he clashed heads with Chevy Chase so much because Chevy Chase was like, you're an amateur, you are you got no experience. And so it was like this terrible thing. So Columbus was like, I'm quitting the production. And John Hughes is like, look, I got two scripts. He sent them both. The second one was Home Alone. And he's like, I'll do Home Alone. And Chris Columbus is now known for like directing the first two Harry Potter films, National Treasure, Adventures in Babysitting, like... Chris Columbus is a great director. He's awesome. Also, fuck Chevy Chase, anyway. So this movie, I mean, if you, if you don't know it, it's essentially this kid, Kevin McAllister, gets forgotten by his whole family as they go to Paris for Christmas, and he's home alone. And Kevin McAllister is played by none other than Macaulay Culkin. He is, like, the child everyone remembers from the 80s, you know? Like, he is so funny, and just so expressive. And like, I think that's like what people saw in him when he was just like this like young child actor of just like how funny he was as a kid. But like also like really good at being an actor because he would have lines down and stuff like that. And like, yeah, for his age, his comedic timing is stellar. It was just a great atmosphere because a lot of the kids would be more professionals than the adult actors on set which was hilarious to think about there's there's a lot of interviews about home alone from a lot of the production team and like the cast and everything that like chris columbus like treated all the actors the same like as as artists of their craft and like that went to with all the kids as well like he didn't treat them like kids he treated them as actors and so there's like a lot of funny behind the scenes stuff of like him and macaulay culkin just like 
talking it out and Macaulay's like, should do a dolly shot here. I think uh, Chris and I decided we're going to do a dolly shot here. And then Chris is like, cool. Yeah, I like that. I like that. What do you think about the next shot? And Macaulay's like, I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, and then Chris is like, what about a close up? And Macaulay's like, yeah, I like that. I like that. Let's do that. Because it's just like, there's just so much love and like joy happening on set while filming this movie. So the movie starts out near Christmas time and there's this crazy household with a bunch of kids not all of whom live at this house which is the crazy part and you just see all these people running around and you're just like what is going on in this crazy big house with dozens of children running around and we find out like this is kind of like the extended McAllister family and they're all like together getting ready to go to Paris because they have extended family in Paris for Christmas to go meet up with and I think it's like the father's brother and all of his kids. So it's like a bunch of cousins and siblings and everything. And it's just a bunch of commotion. And we got a police officers at the front door trying to like talk to some parents of the house. We don't really know why. And we just kind of just see the commotion of this household as well as the relationship all these children have with Kevin, our main character. People hate Kevin. Like these children despise kevin and like yes kevin's like an eight-year-old who's like a bit of like a needy eight-year-old arguably but like he's not that bad he's not that bad but like he has so much hate in comparison to anyone else it's insane throughout all of this like people are like frantically like trying to pack their bags because they the next morning they're all going to the airport to fly to paris so it's a bunch of commotion And Kevin's told to go pack his own bag, but he's never packed a suitcase before for himself. And so he's asking for help, but no one's helping him. And he's just kind of feeling like he's being like forgotten and disregarded. So he's like acting out like a child does when they feel like they're not being when they're being neglected. And it kind of leads to dinner. This poor pizza delivery boy who also is a terrible driver because he hits the front of the house statue every time. He's like the worst delivers like 10 pizzas and he's like waiting around for his 120 some dollars that he he needs for his paycheck for the bill and all the kids are eating all the pizza and kevin gets there and there's no more cheese pizza and buzz his older brother has been like this nemesis of his like it's like good brother rivalry nonsense you know and buzz is like mocking him and being a punk and kevin starts a fight and it chain reactions into this like whole mess of commotion and spilling soda and like getting the tickets plane tickets wet and milk and everything and it's this whole commotion and everyone dead silent stops and even adults are like kevin you are a jerk you are miserable you're and like all these names and stuff pg names because this is a pg movie but like they're vicious to him well it's it's his uncle i think who literally in the dead silence like stares at him and is like, you little jerk or whatever. And it was like, the kid's eight. So Kevin's mom sends him up to the attic because she's like, you're going upstairs. He's like, okay, I'm upstairs. And she's like, no, upstairs. He's like, not the third floor. And so he gets to spend the rest of the night up there by himself as a punishment because she doesn't want to see his face until the next morning. So as he's sent there, like, pizza guy finally gets paid off. The police officer finally gets to talk to an adult who owns the home. And he's just checking in about people going on vacation and stuff and trying to, like, be like, cool, so you guys are going to Paris? Great, great, great. We just want to make sure you guys are 
doing all you can to protect your cells because this time of year there's a lot of you know break-ins and robberies so we just want to make sure people are doing the best they can wink wink so everyone kind of goes to bed and through the night mysteriously the power goes out from a partial storm through the night so the family wakes up late to get to the airport and it's another commotion of the morning and everything's like crazy and it's nonsensical this kid from across the street who knows they're going on vacation to paris he's going on vacation to florida with his family he's being like a you know kid who's just curious and being a punk and he's bothering like the shuttle drivers who are trying to drive these like 30 people to the airport or whatever they're trying to do head counts of everybody he gets miscounted as one of the kids and he goes back home they all get to the airport and they rush through the airport which by the way they actually like film that like running through a crowded airport in a day and they're so thankful nobody actually got hurt to their knowledge because it was full-on sprinting and bumping into each other. And I'm just like, that's crazy. But anyways, they get to the airport, they make it just in time, and they get on the plane. Lo and behold, they don't realize that they forgot Kevin. Kevin wakes up by himself, goes downstairs, and everyone's gone. He believes he wished them to go away, because in his last fight with his mother, he was talking about how he hopes he never has to see his family ever again, and He would love to be by himself and not have to deal with any of them ever again. And his wish comes true. Like he thinks it's some divine will that made this happen. Like a Christmas wish from Santa that came true. And so we get this like, this movie is full of so many like montages of Kevin being this free kid to do whatever he wants. And so you get one of these first ones and he's just like jumping around. He's like eating popcorn, bouncing in bed and just having a great time and then we cut back to the the airplane which is like mid-flight across the atlantic to europe and the mother's like i i feel like i forgot something my mother intuition happens because i think that first night kevin his first night alone that he knows he's alone these robbers come by to try and break into the house And he ends up turning on a bunch of lights kind of thing and spooks them away. And he's thankful, but he's scared. And that sends these like mother tinglings into the air. And so Kevin's mom's like, I forgot something. I forgot something. And she realizes she hasn't seen Kevin. And so there's a bunch of panic on the airline. And the the uncle is so terrible of a human being. He's such a dick. (laughs) He's like, I know what it feels like. I forgot my reading glasses. And it's like, shut up. You didn't forget a whole human being. (laughs) Also, like, two things. Number one, I've always wondered what kind of job did Kevin's parents have that they could afford to pay for their whole extended family to take a Christmas vacation to Paris and have that house that they have. But then also... Like, that uncle is so fucking ungrateful because this trip is all expenses paid for him. And he's an asshole? No. Like, I'm sorry. That's not how that gets to work. Between all this, we kind of learn about these two burglars. We, as the audience, realize that one of the burglars was the cop who was there checking in on the McAllister family. He was scoping out houses to rob on this block of the neighborhood. This is their new stake out area to go do a bunch of burglaries and they call themselves 
the wet bandits because their calling card is to leave all the water running after they rob a house, which is so stupid. <laughs> so dumb. So these burglars are Marv and Harry, and they are played by Daniel Stern and Joe Pesci. Like they got Joe Pesci in this movie, and it's hilarious. So Joe Pesci, he was one of the first picks to be one of these robbers. I mean, they were looking at like De Niro. Oh, interesting. I can see that. But they ended up going with Joe Pesci, who starred alongside De Niro in a in Raging Bull. And it's hilarious because Pesci had to make up his own like gibberish language because he had to resist from swearing a lot on this movie because he's known for swearing. He has a quote about the only way he can read through scripts that he gets from like some of the big time directors and everything is if he adds like a fuck or a shit or a damn every three to four words. Oh my God. So these bandits have been starting to hit houses and they've like tried to get to the McAllister house because that is their silver tuna, silver donut. They keep changing the name, but it's their prized possession stakeout because it's the richest house on the block and everything. And so they're, they're, at odds because someone was in the house and they were supposed to be gone in Paris. But they realized while robbing, I think, the house across the street, because as the McAllister family lands in Paris, they're all doing phone calls to try to reach people. But none of the phone calls are going through because because of the crazy storm, the phones have kind of been out and a bunch of people are on vacation. So they hear through the phone answering machine because the phone started working again that the McAllisters are indeed in Paris. So they're like, oh, then let's go and try to rob that house tonight then. Kevin has been trying to be like an adult by himself as an eight-year-old. So he realizes he doesn't have his toothbrush because I guess it got packed in a suitcase or something by his parents. So he goes to try and get a toothbrush. But he gets wigged out because there was something set up earlier in the movie. One of the neighbors is this old, old man and Buzz made up this stupid, ridiculous story that he is secretly this killer who kills people with his shovel and stuff like that. But he's never they've never had enough evidence to catch him and everything. So Kevin has this like ridiculous fear of this man. And he shows up at the drugstore where Kevin's trying to buy a toothbrush. And Kevin gets too freaked out and runs out shoplifting this toothbrush. And he gets chased by like one of these store boys and then subsequently by a police officer it's so ridiculous but it's so cool because you're like i feel with this kid i'm on this adventure with him like it's so well filmed so props to the cinematographer who this was his first big real movie being clever enough to get some of those shots of just like the action and everything and being able to get it going underneath the guy's legs with Kevin kind of thing and Kevin actually doing that and getting that like real joy and just everything. It's just perfect. Like they did such a good job trying to like just capture the brilliance of the ridiculousness, but also the joy of like being a kid and home alone during Christmas. So Kevin, he's starting to connect dots because the van that the burglars keep using are is like this like fake plumbing company. And he starts getting followed by them because he almost gets run over by them because he's so distracted and distraught because he's like shoplifted and he thinks he's a criminal now and he's just like panicked and everything. And they end up following him because Kevin sees Harry and he's like, you're that cop. And he gets weirded out. And so he tries to like 
run away from him. And they follow him until he runs far enough and hides in a church. And then they bail because they're like, I'm not going into a church. We're burglars. So like, that's, we can't do that. We're just so just funny. Like just a, such simple, clean comedy of that bit. So Kevin realizes like, oh, these guys might come and try to burglar again. So he sets up one of his ingenious contraptions of this fake party of like all these mannequins and like, a Michael Jordan cardboard stand-up going around on a train. He's like puppeteering all these mannequins, pretending there's a party in the house, and that scares off the burglars again because they see all these silhouettes of people having a party and loud music and stuff, which, you know, pisses them off. So as Kevin's like kind of like really enjoying the lonely time with himself, he's starting to get truly lonely and sad because he's by himself. And we get like a little bit of that. But luckily, his mother, who's been trapped in Paris waiting for a plane to get back, manages to get on a plane to get back to the U.S. Not to Chicago yet, because they live out of Chicago. She's going to go on more of a crazy escapade, and we'll get back to that. So then another time, there's just so many fun gags and goofs in this movie. I can't get to all of them. All the times Kevin scares off the burglars and everything. So one of the last times the burglars kind of like investigate the house, they realize... So Kevin's kind of like being more of an adult. He's cleaning dishes. He's doing laundry. He's like growing up, which is really interesting that he's like just maturing by being stuck home alone and realizing the responsibility it is to like take care of things. The wet bandits decide to try and figure it out. So Marv goes to try and investigate and he's trying to go through the back door. Kevin realizes this. And so he puts on this movie, which is a fake movie of this 1930s film noir, because he watched it earlier in the movie when he wasn't supposed to, because his uncle wouldn't let him watch it, because it gets very violent in the one scene. But he uses this scene cleverly to like fake things out, and it's like this dialogue about like these organized crime type conversation, and one guy is like, "You owe this money," and he's like, "How about?" I owe you this, and he like shoots him with a Tommy gun kind of thing. It's like it's classic dialogue. Like if you heard it, you've heard it. And so he uses one side of that dialogue by fast forwarding through the movie and playing at times to like set up a conversation and everything. And like lights off a bunch of firecrackers when you start shooting the Tommy gun to scare Marv off and spook them. And then they're like thinking like he said there's like this guy named snakes and like there's like these other guys in there harry and i'm like i'm freaking out here i'm freaking out like i don't know what to do man we should just get out of here and harry's like whoa 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 this is our turf like i don't want the cops to like you know get us knowing it's us who have been robbing these people when there's been a murder like i'd rather have a face to a name so they wait out and they stake out the house for like several hours and then kevin not knowing that they're staking it out goes outside to cut off the top of a tree for his own little personal Christmas tree, which is so adorable. It's so cute. And they realize this kid is home alone because they go look in the window and Kevin fakes out trying to be like, Dad, I need help over here. And Harry's like, this kid's home alone. We're coming back tonight. And Marv's like, are you sure? And he's like, yes, this is our house. We're going to get it. So Kevin realizes he's got to like, do the best traps he has. And like, he has to do a few errands. He runs out to go try to talk to the local Santa impersonator guy, which like he knows is not really Santa. It's one of the most heartwarming scenes for me in this movie now, because this guy who's like not Santa and like Kevin's like, I know you're not Santa, but I know you work for Santa. And the guy's just like, this like 
college age guy who's just like late for a Christmas party who's like smoking but like has decency to be like this is a kid because when Kevin races up to him realizes this is a kid and like quickly like throws away his cigarette because he like wants to keep that illusion of Christmas he's like decent of enough of a person and he's talking to Kevin and Kevin's like I just wish for my family to come back and this guy's immediately like I don't know what is wrong with you, but you don't have your family, but I feel for you and I'm so sorry and I'll do the best I can to transfer that information for you to the big Santa at the North Pole. And Kevin's like, thanks. And then he's like, I'm sorry you don't have any any more candy canes, but here's some Tic Tacs because, you know, you shouldn't go home with nothing. And it's just so heartwarming of a scene because then that Santa gets in his car and his car doesn't start. And it's just like, so real like he's like a real person and it's just so sad but so heartwarming at the same time then kevin goes to church because he hears church singing and he he just gets distracted with the the christmas spirit i guess because it's not necessarily religious i think it's just more christmas spirit-esque vibes and so he goes to church and goes to sit and listens and then his next door neighbor's there and he comes and sits next to kevin but kevin you know, has been maturing throughout this movie and he's not being as scared of this next door neighbor. And they have this like really touching conversation and like Kevin and him kind of grow in that moment of like the neighbor tells him just to like family matters. So like don't waste any time by, you know, losing time with them. And Kevin's like, well, you should talk to your son kind of thing because it doesn't hurt to even try. You never know. And it's like this really touching, like these two people helping each other who have, you know, their own problems and everything. And that scene when they filmed it, like, this movie is a lot of, like, quick shots of, like, goofs and gaffs and stunts and everything and just escapades of Kevin. But when they did the scene, it's a longer dialogue-heavy scene. And apparently Macaulay Culkin came in on set and he was just, like, did it. Like, professionally well done, got through the whole scene, understood pacing, and he's just so believable. Like, Chris Columbus was, like, in awe that could do that as a child actor of like nine years old, like stunning, stunning work. So then Kevin has to race home and he starts prepping. And this is like the, the classic montage of setting up all the traps. Meanwhile, Kevin's mom is stuck in like the third airport in the U S trying to get back to Chicago. She's like in, I don't even know where she is. Uh, She's like in some like weird Midwest town or something. And she's just like, just far enough away, but like doesn't have a means to get there and there's no more flights available. And she's like losing her mind because she's been awake for like 36 hours straight or 60 hours straight. It's something crazy. She's like losing her mind. And your eight-year-old kid has been alone for all of those hours. Like understandably, but she's like losing her shit at people. And then we get our best cameo, John Candy, shows up and he's like, I want to help you out, ma'am. He plays this character called Gus Polinski who is a polka musician with hits like polka, polka, polka and everything. They got John Candy in this movie because he was an Uncle Buck with Macaulay Culkin. And like that, that spawned, John Hughes was in awe of Macaulay Culkin in that movie. And so he wanted to do another movie with the kid because it's the first time John Hughes worked with like a child because he's usually done a bunch of coming of age teen movies. That's like what he was known for with his Brat Pack and everything. So he managed to get John Candy to be in this movie as a favor And they only paid him $414, but they spent a 23-hour day filming all of John Candy's scenes. Holy crap. You're joking. Nope. That is is what happened because that is the... Also, the 
only other day John Hughes was on set because he's on set one day early in filming and then John Candy Day because John Hughes, John Hughes is usually very particular about people reading his dialogue and stuff like that and not changing too much because, I mean, he is a master at what he did. Like, it works, right? It's well done. But when John Candy's there, he lets John Candy improv everything. So everything that comes out of John Candy's mouth is complete improv. Oh my god, that makes that those all those scenes like ten times better. But like you can see, like John Hughes was like when he has John Candy on set, he's gonna make the most of that day and of his time as much as possible. Hence a twenty-three hour day filming all those scenes, which is insane. Anyways, Gus, played by John Candy. Uh, helps Kevin's mom out and be like, we're getting a truck to get us to like Mil- Milwaukee or something, but Chicago's on the way, so we'll like we'll get you to Chicago. And she's so thankful, and then it's just like this like crazy scenes of being in the back of like a U-Haul truck with a polka band playing music, and it's just ridiculous and hilarious. They have like a touching couple conversations and everything, also because Kevin's mom has this realization that like it's. Not to forget what matters most in your life, especially when it concerns like your children. It's just like this loving, touchy moment about family values and stuff like that. Um, anyways, we cut back to Kevin defending the house. The burglars show up, and it's just like the craziest of escapades and traps. Like it's so Looney Tunes and like so well done. Also terrifying. Like looking at adult, some of the falls and stunts and everything, they had to do most of those stunts for real without safety harnessing or anything because the safety harnessing kept being seen too much on film. So like some of these stunt guys like did crazy falls. Oh, I mean, all the stuff, if it would happened in real life, like they would have been dead. Like like stunt trick one that of Kevin Strap, dead. Burglar's dead. Like it's... <laughs> It's insane because like uh, Kevin laces like a bunch of the outside of the house with like water that it freezes over as ice. And so like that's one of the first things. And it's like so much slipping and these stunt guys are like flipping themselves like like five to eight feet in the air and landing like straight on their back on like concrete stairs that is that has been iced over and everything. And like it looks like it hurts so much. And there's like no pads or anything. This is an era before like thinking about safety in a clever manner. So, like, these people are, like, taking these hits for real. According to, like, everyone filming it, like, though it looks funny now as, like, it all put together in post and everything, when they were filming it, people were terrified that these people weren't going to get up again because, like, the way, like, it was terrifying how brutal some of these stunt guys took stunts. But, like, in interviews, these stunt guys loved doing it. Oh, I'm sure. Because when did they get to do, like, crazy stuff like that? The cinematographer also, fun fact, he did research on a bunch of Looney Tunes cartoons to figure out how to film all of these action sequences and comedy traps and escapades and everything. So like, that's the style we get and it works so well. They had this little camera. It's like this tiny, tiny film camera because everything was done on film when they were doing this movie. So they had this tiny camera. I had a really funny name, but it was like, known as like a stunt camera to get shots just in case like they didn't have enough coverage and everything because they only had like one other main camera and so the cinematographer was very worried about capturing all these crazy stunts and everything and they realized like in dailies that like this little tiny camera was capturing the best shots and so they utilized that more and more so like it's just 
crazy clever and it created the style of the movie by utilizing that camera more and more because it was it became part of like more clever shots like there's a scene where like an iron's being dropped down a laundry chute and like we see the falling and that's the camera itself falling down the laundry chute which is so clever and everything so anyway there's a bunch of traps and everything that kevin does to mess with the these robbers harry and marv and they get like messed up royally like set on fire stepping on things losing their shoes probably like eight concussions a piece like <laughs> bare minimum kevin then like zips lines out of his house into his tree house after he's called the police but it's a trap because he's called them to the house across the street. And so he's trying to outrun them and everything, but they chase him to the house across the street and they trap him. Harry has been trying to get an edge on him, but Kevin's been like a little bit clever every time until this one moment where they come through like the upstairs of the house while Kevin goes through like the basement of the house that's been partially flooded because they've already robbed this place and they capture him. But luckily, Kevin gets saved by his next-door neighbor that hits them over the head with a shovel. And they get out of the house, and then the police arrest Harry and Marv. And the police are making jokes of like, oh, so you guys are the guys who like leave the water running. So we know every single house you've been at. And Marv over here is just being like, we are the wet bandits. Remember that wet as in W-E-T. <laughs> and Harry's just like, shut up. <laughs> So then Kevin, because this is all Christmas Eve when this is happening as well. So then Kevin goes to bed hoping his Christmas wish will come true. He wakes up Christmas morning and no one's to be found. But then luckily his mom makes it home and there's just this loving exchange. And then the rest of the family show up because it was Friday by that point when they had their next plane tickets to get back home. Which was so <laughs> just like, of course, you know, like, <laughs> and then Kevin's talking and like the pan- the family's like in a panic of like, we don't have milk. We need a bunch of groceries. And Kevin's like, Oh, I bought milk and I got a bunch of other things. And like, you know, I just, you know, when it did the laundry, got fabric softener and took care of things and cleaned up the house. And people are just like in shock that Kevin, this eight year old has been an adult by himself which is hilarious. The movie ends with Kevin looking out the window and it's like beautiful Christmas snow, which they had to like perfectly plan out to actually get that shot because they were filming in February in Chicago and it was supposed to snow, but it wasn't snowing. So everyone was on, on call that when it does snow, drop everything and get to the house because they have to film like the... Christmas morning shot with the perfect snow because the script called for it and John Hughes is not going to accept potato peels as fake snow, which they also use to add volume. And so like in the subsequent weeks following, as the snow was melting, the potatoes were decomposing and creating a nasty smell. Oh my God. (laughs) So Kevin sees his neighbor outside and he's reconnected with with his family and there's like this heartwarming like gratitude and everything and then we hear from upstairs buzz freaking out about how destroyed his room is which is hilarious and the movie ends just like that it's just such a crazy fun roller coaster of a movie it makes you believe to be a child again and missing childhood i feel like every time you watch it other fun facts i mean this movie has so much production history Again, I do highly recommend watching the Netflix episode of the movies that made us because they kind of like dive into all of this. So John Hughes wrote this script and 
he was trying to get it made. So he went to Warner Brothers first and Warner Brothers was like, we're not sure this is going to do well because it doesn't have like any big 80s actors in it or anything. It's got kid actors, 10 million. It'll take $10 million to make. And they're like, okay, cool. And as they were like in pre-production and starting to like send out budget, the budget back to the studio, they got to like $14.7 million and Warner Brothers was not happy about that. They're like, bring it down to 13.5. And it was like, not going to happen. Like this movie could not be made that low because of just how much they had to like rebuild like the house in an abandoned high school gym. So secretly, John Hughes was having clandestine meetings with people at 20th Century Fox. A script was left for one of the heads of 20th Century Fox to find of Home Alone because the guys at 20th Century Fox are willing to like pay John Hughes enough to make that movie happen because they're like, oh, no, this sounds like a great movie. Like, I, I pay you 15 mil, no problem. And so when word got out that Warner Brothers was shutting down the movie, it was a quick turnaround that 20th Century Fox picked it up. So like, there's a story of one of the guys because uh, they had all their production offices at this abandoned high school in Chicago. So John Hughes is from Chicago and he loved making movies there. So like this town that he was in that they were filming Home Alone was also the town that they filmed most of his other movies like Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Breakfast Club. Like the, the abandoned high school that they're in is where Breakfast Club was filmed and everything. So they set up production offices for this movie, Home Alone there, as well as built all of the sound stages for like the replica duplicates of the house itself in like the gymnasium and then the basement of the flooding house at the end of the movie in the abandoned swimming pool of this high school, which is just crazy to think about. As word got out that Warner Brothers was shutting it down, the reps from Warner Brothers went by office to office telling everyone, like, the film's been shut down, stop working. But then the guy who was like head of production had to follow him essentially and tell everyone being like, it's now a 20th Century Fox picture. Keep working. Go back to work. Don't worry about it. So it's like a roller coaster for everyone working involved. And by the end of it, when the Warner Brothers guy finally got to the last people he needed to tell that the production was dead, he realizes the head of production was behind him. And he's just like, you're fired. Goodbye. Because they had to like make this work without getting lawsuits from Warner Brothers against 20th Century Fox. Some of the other funny things, um, I, I do want to give... Uh, recognition to a lot of the stunt doubles. The main ones for Pesci and Stern were Troy Brown and Leon Delaney. So great stunt guys doing the great work of taking all those hits. There was one injury that did happen between Pesci and Culkin. So the scene where Harry is trying to like bite Kevin's fingers, uh, Joe Pesci accidentally did bite one of Macaulay Culkin's fingers, and he still has a scar to this day of that bite. Also, fun little trivia thing, Joe Pesci hated coming in for 7 a.m. daily calls. This shoot was very restrictive because they couldn't film a lot at night because Macaulay Culkin is a child and they had rules that he couldn't film past 10 p.m. So it was very difficult to film night scenes and everything. But Joe Pesci needed to play his nine holes of golf every morning. So he hated his 7 a.m. calls. You're joking. To the point he went to uh, one of the ADs and like drug him, literally dragged him by his collar 
to uh, one of the producers and was like, change my call time to 9 a.m. You don't need me at 7 a.m. anyways. And so they changed his call time. Holy shit. Daniel Stern, the guy who plays Marv, he he was on board at the beginning. He signed on when it was six weeks of shooting. But when they extended it to eight weeks and he asked for a raise and they wouldn't give it to him, he said, nah. So they had another guy come in. And during the first couple of days of shooting, there wasn't good enough chemistry with Joe Pesci. So Chris was like, we need, we need Daniel Stern back. And so they went back to him and Stern's like, yeah, 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 I'll come back. And thank goodness he did. Like, he's like, I, I don't know why I let my big headedness get in the way because that was stupid of me to do that. This movie did spawn many sequels. Its first sequel, Lost in New York, still has Macaulay Culkin in the lead role. But then all these subsequent other sequels don't have like any relation for the most part, with the McAllister family. But, like, I do also recommend watching Lost in New York. That's also a lot of funniness and, like, different heartwarming Christmas stuff. Like, this movie captures so well being a ridiculous comedy, but still being very Christmassy. And that a lot comes to Chris Columbus, because when John Hughes wrote the first pass of the script, Columbus did some notes and sent it back to John Hughes to add some more heartwarming family value Christmas vibes, like the whole church scene. Chris added a lot of the extra dialogue and the character of the next door neighbor to kind of make it this family centered Christmas movie to add a like second layer of plot device to it. So like there was a bit of back and forth with John Hughes and Chris Columbus about the script, but like, it's really cool that like John Hughes actually took the criticisms and notes and everything because he usually doesn't as as a writer but he he at least had the recognition of like other good talent i mean that's gonna do it for me with home alone honestly it's just a lot of fun awesome yeah tons of history with that one well awesome i think that wraps up then our uh classic holiday films i i highly recommend both of these i i know there are people out there who haven't seen one of these if not both go watch them they're worth the watch Um, And if you've already seen them, watch them again, uh, because they're good. They're classic for a reason. So next week, our theme is ABC Family's 25 Days of Christmas. Uh, So Chandler, what is your movie for next week? My movie is the 2012 The Mistletones, the first ever ABC Family original musical. Oh boy. I haven't seen that one yet, so I'm, I'm interested. I picked... The 2007 pop-off, Holiday and Handcuffs, starring Melissa Joan Hart and Mario Lopez. So I am super pumped to watch these two as a double feature. Thank you guys for listening to Resonant Reels this week. I've been Adam. I've been Chandler. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, all the fun things on all the podcast platforms. Rate us on Apple Podcasts if you listen there. You know, all the support helps and everything. Awesome. See you later. See ya.